So with that, let's go ahead and open up the scriptures tonight. One more week in our Selah series. Next week we are going to pick up a new series that will run through Easter. We'll be talking about the seven cries of Jesus from the cross and what that means for us as we consider Jesus uh, and who he is and what he has done for us. But if you've been with us the past month, we have talked about and engaged a variety of themes. We started out about a month ago talking about naming the disruptions and the discouragements that we have all faced in this past season. Uh, We've talked about the idea that we are all created for intimacy with God and that you get to play a part in that. We talked about and diagrammed out Psalm 1, tree, Jeremiah 17. We talked about the lampstand talked about the olive oil, we talked about God's word to his people in chaotic times, about the promise of his presence. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about our church values and our desire to cultivate intimacy with God, with others, for others, and these are the values that help color and paint our formation as a church. Um, That logo may become familiar as we talk about with God, with others, for others, but then we talked around the circle, and we talked about health and flourishing, we talked about the idea of biblical justice, lavish hospitality, committed community, and kingdom imagination. But, but here's where I want to go tonight. I think that whenever we start talking about this thing of intimacy, I've come to discover in conversation that that's a hard word for people for a variety of reasons. So when we talk about, hey, as a church, in our discipleship, in our formation, we're going to cultivate intimacy. Different people hear that different ways. Here's a quote from uh, an author named Dallas Willard. I I agree with the quote, but for some it can be a hard quote. He says, God has created us for intimate friendship with himself, both now and forevermore. This is the Christian viewpoint. And And it's one thing to read it on the screen or to point to a page like, yeah, we're created for intimate friendship. And then some people hear that and go, what does that even mean? Or do I even want that? What if, what if you grew up thinking that intimacy was just for women? Like it's girly stuff. I don't want to reinforce stereotypes, but I think there are a lot of men and women, but there's a lot of men that struggle with the idea of intimacy. What in the world does that even mean? What if you grew up in a house that didn't do emotions, that didn't express love, and then to talk about, I'm, I'm created for intimate friendship with God, and you're like, I don't even know where to go with that. I'm not very touchy-feely. Get away from me. What if all you know about intimacy is sex? Which makes it really odd then to be like, oh, I don't, what are we talking about this in church for? Or like intimacy with God? Like what in the world does that even mean? So intimate friendship can, for some, feel like I've got no category, I've got no or limited experience with that, and I don't even really know what to do. Like, it sounds like like that'd be a great idea. I, I would, I think, like maybe friendship with God, or I think maybe intimacy with God, but I'm not quite sure what that means or how do I approach that. So if someone were to ask you, 
Are you a Christian? You may have some categories to engage that. You could say maybe yes or maybe no. If someone was to ask you, if someone were to ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus? Again, others have different framework for that. What does it mean to be an apprentice to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? But if someone were to ask you, are you an intimate friend of God? My hunch is is that many of us would not like that question. Or we were like, uh, I don't know. Or I don't feel like it. Or maybe there's something else I have to do. Which again makes it hard to have a conversation about it if we have all these different other things, layers, wounds, baggage, challenges attached to the conversation itself. So, I got one more shot today to try and maybe come at this from a different angle. For maybe if you grew up thinking that intimacy was not for you, or it's been tied to sex, or maybe it's been tied to things that other people do but not for you, or like the super, the super crazy emotional people that do that kind of stuff. I want to share a story from the Old Testament. I want to share a story from the life of David. I think it maybe helps give some handles to this idea we're saying you are made for intimacy with God. You're made for intimate friendship with God. What might that look like? If you have a Bible, why don't you open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Here's a vision of intimate friendship that I think applies. It definitely applies on this plane with other people. But I also think it applies vertically with us and God and God to us. 2 Samuel 23. Verse 13. It says, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So oftentimes, maybe you've heard about David before. Maybe your David knowledge is filled with maybe some Sunday school lessons or some Old Testament reading, but we tend to think of David in his good days, his days of celebration and triumph. We can think of David and Goliath when he killed the giant, or David when he writes these beautiful songs, or David on the days when he is king of Israel and there is peace in the land. But David as a person, when you read his life, when we get a lot of his life, he has ups, but he also has downs. And he is anointed king, But he has these seasons when he gets run out of town and a jealous King Saul chases him out of town into the wilderness for quite some time. At the end of his life, David gets chased again by his son Absalom out of Jerusalem who revolts against his father and tries to steal his throne. So even though David did have some extremely high highs, he had also some very low lows. So in this story, 2 Samuel 23, on this occasion, David is once again on the run. He's on the run for his life. He has been chased out of town, not by Saul, not by his son. This time he's been chased out by the Philistines. So even though David is the king, he's not living on his throne in the palace. He's living in a cave. He's living in the cave of Adullam. And the Philistines have pushed all the way in to set up a military outpost in Bethlehem, only a few miles outside of Jerusalem. So this text doesn't give us a lot about David's emotional state, but you can kind of connect the dots. 
He's not living in his plush palace. He is living in a cave. He's living on the run. And while he has wealth and riches in this moment, this is not David's finest hour. So he's in the cave, on the run from the Philistines, when three of his chief men, three of the 30 chief men, other places describe him as David's mighty men, three men come for a visit. A couple of the mighty men of David. And again, I'm going to try and give you a little bit more backstory here to color this in. Throughout the life of David, these mighty men came to the rescue and help of David. David had the unique ability to gather around him a band of brothers, kind of these hodgepodge collection, really, of warriors that helped David escape death time and time again. Uh, look at 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I'm going to give you a little backstory. We'll hop back into the scene at the cave. But th- these are the kind of guys, these are the dudes, these are the men, these are the friends, these are the, the, the mighty men of David that came to help him. You kind of get the flavor They came to number over 400 men at the peak, but then you also have these different collections of these mighty men. It says, now these are the mighty men who came to David at Ziklag. Well, he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. And then in verse 8, it describes here, it says, from the Gadites there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. So over time, David grew this collection of warrior men, bowmen, ambidextrous stone slingers, to have on your team warriors who were experts in shield and spear faces like lions i just pictured jeff storvik in the full beard legs as swift as gazelles man those are some good friends to have when you're living life on the run they are not wimps they are not weaklings these are men skilled and full filled with courage So as the Bible talks about these mighty men, again, there's groups within the groups, 400 mighty men, but then there became these 30 chiefs or leaders, but even among the, so there's the 400, there's the 30, and then among the 30, there were the three. These were known as the three. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 23 then. So as we're told about these three These are some of David's good friends. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashebeth, a Tachemonite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. 
And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. So here we have this mouthful of names and a little anecdote, right? A little story about each of these three chief mighty men. Next slide. First one. We'll just recap these three. We just heard their story. First one, Josheb Bashebeth. Anyone looking for baby names? <laughs> Put it on the registry right there. And you have this story. Elsewhere he's called in the Bible Joshobam for short, but Josheb Bashebeth. He's the chief of the three, right? He's the Jack Bauer. He's the Jason Bourne. He's the, what's the president of Ukraine right now? Zelensky. Right, he's the ringleader. And the little story we get is he used his spear to kill 800 men in one fell swoop. And he stands with David in courage and he says, I will stand with you against all odds. It's a good friend to have. I'll stand with you even when we're outnumbered. I'm here with you. Next little vignette, Eleazar, son of Dodo. Poor child, Dodo's son, Eleazar. And then there's this little story we hear about him. And one day, he's with David when the Philistines attack. And the attack mounts. And all the other men of Israel, they run away in fear. But instead of joining the ranks of all the other people who run away, we're told that Eleazar remains. And he rises up and he fights, we're told, until his hand becomes weary. And you can imagine him carrying his sword for so long, and he's in this intense battle, back and forth, clang, clash, clang, hit after hit. And there's this unique little phrase at the end of the story. It says that after the battle, Eleazar's hand clung to the sword. Other translations say that his hand like stuck to the sword. He'd been carrying his sword so long, fighting so fiercely, his, like his hand became one with the sword. That's how long he was fighting and how long he was battling. He and his sword melded as one. And then, after they win, all the people who ran away come back, it says, to claim the spoils of war. So everyone else, when times got tough, ran away, and then they won and they came back. But not Eleazar. He's faithful. And in his faithfulness, he says, I will weary my hand with you even when others bail. I'll fight with you until my hand sticks to the sword. And there's this third one of the three, Shema. We get his little story, which again, I love this story. It's just crazy. Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. It's interesting that all three of them are foreigners. Interesting. The friends of Israel don't remain faithful, but these three foreigners. One day, we're told the Philistines attack a plot of land filled with lentils. What are lentils? <laughs> Delicious. What are lentils? Legumes. What are legumes? 
Beans. They're attacking our beans. And everyone else runs away. Shema takes his stand and says, you aren't touching our beans. And he defends the ground. He strikes on the Philistines. And it says that the Lord worked a great victory that day. Right? So Shema says, hey, what's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. And we're going to share together. And I'll stand up for your beans, for your lentils. I love the stories in the Old Testament. Jasheb, Bashebeth, Eleazar, Shema, the three leaders of the mighty men. Just so you know, my friends, like this is intimate friendship. And ask, it's not the fullness of it, but this is, these are some of the pieces, too. For those that maybe have a hard time picturing what intimacy may be like. There's intimacy when someone stands with you and says, hey, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. I'm, I'm here. I'm going to fight with you against all odds. There's intimacy b- built. So all that was just a little bit of background for what then happens next. Uh, go to the next slide. So we're told about these mighty men. We're told about these three particular chiefs of the mighty men. And then here's a little story then. Verse 14, which we read, David's then in the stronghold. He's in the garrison of the Philistines. was at Bethlehem. David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So David is in the cave. David has been run out of town. David is there, and he begins to muse. His friends have come to visit him, these three. The three have come to visit him, and he begins to talk. And this is not David giving anybody an order. This is not a command. This is David musing, and he's saying, Oh, man, wouldn't it be nice if someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem? This isn't a command. This isn't a dare. It's not that hard to dare people. I've had to teach my son that just because someone dares you to do it doesn't mean you have to do it. Because there have been a lot of stupid things done in the name of a dare. This isn't a dare. This isn't a command. This is just a, a, a moment of honesty among his friends. And David is musing to himself, man, some Bethlehem well water sure would be nice. David's from Bethlehem. It's his hometown. And somehow in this season, in this moment, he gets a little nostalgic. He's like, man, I want want something here. And there's this unfiltered statement of desire. This is what I'd like. And he longs for some Bethlehem water. Now, it's not because he was dying of thirst. Most scholars would agree he, he wouldn't have set up camp there if there wasn't some access to water. But there's some deeper longing here. And maybe it wasn't even about the water. Maybe it's a longing for deliverance and freedom and peace and simplicity and the fulfillment of the promises of God in his life. Maybe underneath that longing for water is like, will I ever go home? Will I ever get out of the cave? It'd be nice just to be able to have some water in peace. Why is this happening to me? Will it ever stop? But David isn't the only person in the cave. Remember the three amigos? The three chief mighty men have come for a visit. Next slide. 2 Samuel 23, 16, first half of the verse. It says, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. 
You're like, what? It's not even a full, complete sentence. But do you hear what these guys do? They come and they visit David in the cave of Adullam. David's like, oh man, some Bethlehem well water, that would be awesome. And what do they do? They're like, let's go. And they, they break through the camp of the Philistines and they go to the well of Bethlehem and they get a glass of water and they bring it back to David. Like, can you imagine watching the scene? You're like, where are these guys? Oh, where are they going? What are they doing? Is it some reconnaissance mission? Is there some secret strike about to happen? They're going to the well and they're getting a glass of water and now they're running it back. What, are they, what in the world are they doing? They're pulling out a canteen for water and they're bringing it back to David. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long it took or even the details of the escapade, how many people they killed, if they had to kill anyone. No detail about if they got hurt in the skirmishes or not. Uh, all, the, all the things that inquiring minds want to know, like, tell us more about that raid on the well at Bethlehem. But here's what we do know at the end of the story after this crazy run together, Josheb, Bashebeth, Eleazar, and Shema show back up before their friend David in the cave of Adullam and they're like, hey man, here you go. We got you some Bethlehem well water. I pray that we would have friends like that. And before we go any further in the story, I just want to pay attention to this, this kind of stuff. Again, I'm hoping this helps give us maybe some more handles on intimacy and friendship. Because there's a lot wrapped up in this too. So when we talk about intimacy and friendship, an intimate friendship, next slide. Like These friends are willing to listen. Listening is a lost art. It's one of the most difficult acts a human can do to lay aside your agenda and sit attentively with your friend. Because they're there visiting him and they hear what he's saying and they listen to his need and they don't just show up with their presence. They do show up with their presence, but they're also willing to listen. And they don't just come with their demands or with their advice. David's cry for some well water is heard. It's amazing how many people don't feel heard by anyone. Friendship means I'm willing to listen to you and hear what's really going on on the inside. Also, these friends engage in the deep desires of life, and there's nothing inherently wrong with chit-chat or conversations about the weather or sports or shopping or the kids. Again, you can do that, but this, like, friendship is a willingness to go deeper than that. And there's something really powerful about being in the presence of another where you can be real, and they can get to know like, what's really going on. And at church, oftentimes we come together and we have these plastic faces and these masks that we put on, and we're like, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? And we just like bounce off each other. Again, this applies here, but it also begins to apply with God. Friendship is not just having to be a particular version of you or a fixed version of you or a perfected version of you, but the real you. And I think when David is expressing his desire for water, it's not just that he's being a water snob, like, I only drink the Bethlehem well water. <laughs> 
but he's even using that idea of the water, I think, as a theme to express his questions, his insecurities, his desires about what is happening in his life and situations to those that were in his presence that day. Who knows the desires of your heart? Anyone? Who knows your aches, your longings, your questions, your insecurities, your fears? Who knows those things about you where we keep those things locked up? Again, translated toward God. You're made for intimate friendship with God where he desires to know. He knows, he desires for you to engage with him around your questions and your fears and your insecurities and your longings and your desires. These friends are all in. Some friends won't leave the couch for you. These friends are willing to leave the cave and they're willing to face the fire and they're willing to do battle These guys could have died in Operation Wellwater Gate. (laughs) But you get a sense, again, and the story is just a small snippet, but you get a sense that the danger and the risk and the cost is worth it. That there was maybe a smirk on one of their faces, pick whoever it was, that was like, let's go get David some well water. I'm down. Who's with me? Let's go. This is the kind of story that implicates us. It's not a story of command, right? There's not a voiceover that says, now you too must become a mighty man or a mighty woman. You must fetch glasses of water in harm's way. That's not the point of the text. But when you read about Joshua, Shebeth, Eleazar, and Shema, you can't help, at least I can't, I'll just be, I can't help but have something deep with inside of me cry out long, like, I want that too. I want to have that. I want to give that. I want to have that. I want to offer that. I want to be in a community like that. And I want that with God. All right? Put these up on the screen. Next slide. Like, these ideas. Like, I'm going to stand with you against all odds. I'll weary my hand until my sword sticks. I'm going to defend your beans. I'll fetch you a drink of water. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to engage in the deepest longings and desires. I'm all in with you. I want that. I want to offer that. I want to be that for others. I want that with God. Not just playing games, doing religious stuff, checking off rules and regulations. There's something more beautiful, deeper, more profound, more visceral. And then listen to how the story ends. I haven't even finished the story yet. Second half of verse 16. So they they come back. They break through the Philistine battlefield. They capture water. They bring it back to the cave of the Dullam. Verse 16, David would not drink of it, and he poured it out to the Lord (laughs) and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. What? (laughs) You gotta be kidding me. They bring the water back to David, and he goes, pours it out. And it wasn't just a casual pouring out, though. How did he pour it out? Poured it out to the Lord. In, the, in my mind, the story should end with Josheb, Bashebeth, and Eleazar, and Shema tackling David to the ground, saying, oh, you will drink this water. 
that we went and got for you, all of that hassle. I think there's a lesson here too, though, is that as much as we need friends who will fetch us a glass of water, we also need friends who are willing to pour it out to the Lord. Because I think that statement there, to the Lord, this is not just a casual dumping, but this is David's drink offering. It's a phrase that often would happen in sacrifices as they would pour out drink offerings on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And David realized the cost and he realized the risk. He named, like, man, the blood of people in this. They could have died. He realized it was costly, it was risky. But he also realizes this, was, this is a holy moment to have friends who'd be willing to do that. And that the highest priority even of friendship is not just the friendship itself, but the highest priority of it all is God. And so he puts friendship and sacrifice in perspective the highest ideal in the world isn't just our friendships here, as amazing as true friendship is, but the highest value in life is God himself, who is worthy of all things being poured out before him. So as stirring as these stories are about, I'll weary my hand for you, I'll fight with you against all odds, I'll fetch you a drink, the highest good is the God of friendship. Jonathan Edwards, I think I have this in here, yeah. He says, we should strive to lay God at the foundation of all of our friendship and subordinate our love for each other to the love for God. For so far as it is so, it will last forever. Death won't put an end to such friendship, nor can it put an end to, friends, to a friend's enjoyment of each other. In Christ, your friendships will last forever. And again, we need friends who fetch us water, but also who will pour it out to the one who is worthy of it all. So again, I think the implications are probably more clear to us about like our friendships our, on this plane, the horizontal with others, and our longings for that. We could talk about that, but today again, I want to I take that and, and point it back toward this idea of intimacy with God. And they're connected for sure. But I hope even as you hear a story like this, and we celebrate these three chief mighty men of David and all that they did, I hope you hear behind that or underneath that an impulse that draws our attention to Jesus as the true and greater friend. Jesus is the friend of all friends. As stunning and inspiring as all of these moves of friendship and intimacy are, Jesus didn't just leave the cave of Adullam, he left the splendor of heaven. Jesus didn't just cross the enemy's camp, he moved into the enemy's camp. And more than just growing weary and having a sword stuck to his hand, Jesus laid down his life and took a sword in the side. Jesus didn't just defend lentils, but he took his stand for the sake of the world. He was born and he lived and he died being poured out as a drink offering in our place as the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He has stood against all odds for you. He is true and faithful. Even when everybody leaves, even if your family forsakes you, even if your friends forsake you, Jesus never forsakes. Before there was a universe, before there was anything, from eternity past, there was an eternal friendship 
of divine persons who infinitely and perfectly loved one another, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is friendship in union. And Jesus was willing to risk it all for the sake of our friendship with God, for friendship to be restored. I hope you know and can hear and can see the way God has pursued you in Jesus. Every bit of that story, Jesus has done in greater measure for you. This becomes a clue about God's friendship with us, but it also begins to reshape our friendship with him. These last couple observations. I think in our pursuit of, of intimacy with God, that friendship with God is more diverse and more active than we might think. Sometimes like, well, we, you need to have intimacy with God. And we think, I need to read my Bible more. I need to be silent more. And again, those things are good. But even in this story, there's activity here in their friendship there's a standing, there's a defending, there's a fighting, there's a fetching of water. And I think that as we engage intimacy with God, God desires those pieces of our life to be activated in our friendship with him. Of the things that we stand for, the things that we fight for, the things that we defend, the things that we fetch, the things that we give ourselves to, done for friendship with God. I think friendship with God is more relational than we might think. Listening. We've talked about that tonight. I know oftentimes with God, I can, I can throw a lot at him, but I don't often sit and listen as well. Questions. Conversations. Giving space for God to engage us. Next slide. That intimate friendship with God may be more adventurous than we might think. That the Holy Spirit may say with a wink, you want to join me today? I think there may be some well water for you to go get. Let's do it. And the cultivation of an intimate relationship with God involves adventure. It's not meant to be just a yawn and a bore. It's not just for old people. It's for old and young. Rich and poor. Male and female. God's call for us, his invitation to us, may be more adventurous than we might think. But it begins with a step of faith. and response to receive his friendship toward us through his work on the cross. You're made, you are made for intimacy with God. Intimate friendship. I hope even these stories may they provide, again, some things that, that, that stir in us something more. The journey, the adventure, the relationship.
of what God is offering us in Jesus and what may be our response back to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your friendship. We pray tonight, Lord Jesus, that we may have, again, imagination opened up to what that may look like for us. And I pray for those that may just have a hard time even with the idea of intimacy for whatever reason from the past. Would you, Holy Spirit, breathe fresh life, fresh wind, fresh breath, that we can catch what you may be saying and inviting us to. I pray, God, tonight for those who may be in the room who have not yet come to place their faith and trust in Jesus. May even today be a day where they would say yes by faith to you and experience what forgiveness and grace and repentance is all about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.